everything college basketball listeners what's going on it's conrad cushman from everything pro wrestling everything pro wrestling is a show by the fans for the fans and i'm here to let you know how you guys can catch up on all the latest and greatest in the world of pro wrestling you guys can go to youtube.com type in everything pro wrestling give us a subscribe we are over a thousand subscribers now and we have achieved a youtube partnership If you guys want to be in the live chats, come on in, join us, and talk pro wrestling. We record AEW Dynamite every Wednesday. We also talk about WWE, Ring of Honor, Impact Wrestling, New Japan Pro Wrestling, and your local indies, and much, much more. So make sure you guys are subscribed to Everything Pro Wrestling. You can also listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. All the live streams are transferred right onto there. But enough of me talking about pro wrestling. Let's get you back to listening to everything college basketball. Welcome to another episode of the Everything College Basketball Podcast, your home for the latest news and analysis from the world of college hoops. Back again are your hosts, Josh Burton, Phil Dexter, and Corey Gardner. What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to another edition of the Everything College Basketball Podcast, episode 106. This is titled, The Final Four is Set. Although not quite officially, it's officially unofficial. It'll be set here in a couple minutes. Uh, I'm, of course, your host, Josh Burton, and joining me yet again tonight are a pair of my teammates, Peyton Burton, Phil Dexter, hoping that Corey gets able to join us. If not, what is up, fellas? going on guys another great fucking week of college basketball rock chalk <laughs> fuck you phil coy and josh i told you what was gonna happen damn it we'll get into it later though i'm as happy as I, I can be right now i'm in a great mood today's gonna be a great show and i can't wait to get through it yeah man a lot to talk about with your jayhawks that's for damn sure back in the final four yet again a um, lot to talk about there like i said the final four is set basically there's a couple minutes left to go in the the north carolina st peter's game north carolina had that wrapped up at halftime essentially so we'll consider the final four completely set right now um episode 106 fellas looking back real quick at last week's episode 105 when we look back from the first two rounds previewed sweet 16 anything this past week before we get into sweet 16 games and all that um anything that stood out to you from last week's episode you want to talk about other than peyton and uh Corey having a hell of a little back and forth now that that was the only thing i was going to bring up is uh peyton and Corey, uh you know enemies now apparently but other than that, <laughs> I think everything was, uh, you know, pretty standard. Yeah, that's pretty much stood out for me. It was me and Corey going back at it for pretty much the whole episode. Um, if you guys haven't checked out that video, I posted a little compilation of some of our little jabs we did to each other. And I hope he can join the show today because I had some stuff that I was wanting to say to him. You know, I've been looking on Amazon.com trying to find a VHS player that way I can watch Indiana's last title game since I went alive <laughs> for it. Um not only that, like I've been thinking, I was, I was thinking about writing some jokes for him so he can join the show so I can roast them then. But I got to think about it as soon as I was writing stuff. I ended up, I ended up forgetting all my jokes and I ended up running out of jokes like I used one of the other coaches to hire at this point. Oh, man. I hope he gets on with us. I hope we pick that back up. Um, fellas, today joining us as well, our uh, ECB resident bracketologist, Dan Vasta, will be on with us at the top of the show here. 
But before we get into all this, uh, some real life stuff, I'm not going to dive too deep into it, but um, kind of doing the show with a heavy heart. Um, lost a, a very close friend of mine personally. Uh, bad situation. Like I said, I'm not going to get into it just for his family's sake and really it's somebody's business, but lost somebody really close to me. Tough situation to go through. So what I'd like to do here because it is so personal. He, I know he is a big fan of ours because he, we were basically like brothers. Um, at the top of the show here, just for a quick pause, let's take a moment of silence in uh, Brandon Hughes's memory, my buddy. Um, yeah, man, it, it's tough. So guys watching with us on Facebook and Twitter and the YouTube channel, just a, a quick moment of silence and remembrance, and then we'll get back on with the show. All right, now that we're through that, like I said, sometimes uh, real life stuff takes over, takes precedent. So I thank everybody watching and uh, following along for doing that with us. Like I said, Dan Vosta will be joining us to recap the Sweet 16 Elite Eight and do some Final Four previews. Um, fellas, this Final Four is as blue blood as it possibly can get with the exception of Kentucky UCLA. Um, we'll get full depth and do our previews and breakdowns for this upcoming weekend in New Orleans. But the final four is set. That's the title of the show. It's going to be Duke, North Carolina for the first ever time in the NCAA tournament. Coach K's final ride. We're going to have a lot to talk about that. And on the other side of the bracket, we'll get Kansas Villanova. Without spoiling it too much, because we are going to preview it here later on. Without spoiling too much. I mean, your excitement level for this final four, kind of a bunch of the heavy hitters. What are you thinking without spoiling your predictions? I think for name value for this Final Four, two, the 2012 Final Four was really good because you had Kentucky, Louisville, Ohio State, and Kansas in there. But this is probably like for name value-wise, name value probably the biggest Final Four since, what, maybe 2008 when you had Can all number one seeds, Kansas, Memphis, UCLA, and North Carolina. As far as name value-wise, that's probably the biggest it's going to be since that, since 2008, uh, which Kansas won that title, by the way. Um, but yeah, I'm very excited, very nervous for next week. We'll get into it later, why I'm nervous, but it should be very, very interesting, though. I would definitely say it's, as far as name value goes, it's the biggest since at least 2012, where you had Kentucky, Louisville, and you had Kansas, Ohio State. Now, Ohio State's not the name value as maybe Villanova, but brand-wise, it's probably bigger than Villanova. So I think at least since 2012, this will be the biggest name value that we've had. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's pretty likely that the Duke UNC Final Four game may be the highest rated college basketball game of all time. Oh, um, yeah. I, I mean, it's going to be up there. It's going to be a top five one for sure. And then, like you said, on the other side, we got Villanova and Kansas. Um, it's probably four of the top six, seven programs in the country right now. So I think it's about as good as it gets for you know the people who love seeing the uh, the old guard of college basketball. Uh, you know, doing what they're supposed to do. Which is funny because this is not always how it goes, but it's kind of, we had all these upsets, St. Peter's and their great run. We're going to give them a lot of props here in tonight's show. But it, we all, ultimately it always comes down to the couple of the blue bloods and just so happens we've got four of them here. And I definitely think Peyton and I had this discussion yesterday. 
Villanova's not quite blue blood status yet, but they're knocking on the door. If they can pull off a national title this year, that'd be three and seven years. They're fourth overall. Um, I think they're as good as contention to be a new blue blood as anybody would be. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the three and seven, you know, it's three and six, really, with that missed tournament. Um, yeah, that's fair. And, and uh, Jay Wright is probably, you know, people have sort of talked about who's going to take the baton from Coach K as kind of like the dean of college coaches or whatever. It's got to be Jay Wright for me. I mean, especially if he wins this title this year. Um, there's, there's nobody in the country who's more accomplished than he is. Um, and he still has, you know, 10, 15 years in him to uh, to rack up some wins, some more final Dude. fours. Uh, Jay Wright has really, really solidified himself as a legend of uh, college coaching. Dude, it's something about them Italian coaches. Uh, they <laughs> just know how to win. And uh, I say that jokingly, but also seriously, too. Uh, you look back at the history of uh, the Italian coaches. I mean, you think of Cal Perry, Patino, Jay Wright. Um I'd have to, I'm pretty sure Raleigh Massimino was on there. There's a lot of great Italian head coaches. And uh, Jay, I'm with you, man. Peyton and I, for years now, have said Tom Izzo, he's only got the one title, but the number of Final Fours he's made and his teams are always good in March. We always considered him uh, Mr. March, but I think we're about to change that. I really yeah. think Jay Wright's probably the new Mr. March. <clears throat> well, the reason that is, me and Josh talked about it, and I don't know if Josh, you had that stat pulled up or not, but. Jay Wright is since 2013, his overall record in the tournament since that year, 2013, is like 30 wins, three losses, or something like that, right? Wasn't that the stat, Josh, that we talked about? Yesterday? Uh, no, he since 26 or since um, what was it? Since 20, uh, well, I forget the exact year. What year did was you not, say? Was it not 2013? Oh, yeah, 2013. He is okay. 20 and three now in the NCAA tournament, 20 and three in basically the last 10 years unbelievable and going for his third national championship uh crazy stuff but joining us like we talked about at the top of the show joining us now a resident bracketologist here at ecb uh we welcome mr dan bones vasta of course you guys know dan's history dan has been a writer for many years and currently does bracketology and weekly sports betting podcast called sharp action you guys can check that out at sharpactionshow.com and those brackets, um, obviously, year year in and year out for us. He does a tremendous job. This is his third time this season alone being on with us, and he's become a fixture. So what is up, Dan? We're just kind of previewing sh slightly without getting full in depth about how blue blood this Final Four is. Oh, man. what It's very exciting tournament so far. Uh, you know, the seeds, you look at some of the numbers, maybe not overly shocking, but the teams and overly, it's, it's been electric and certainly a lot of blue bloods. So – it should be exciting matchups, you know, a couple of blowouts on Sunday, uh, but Saturday, very entertaining. And I think uh, a lot of magical Cinderella runs, a couple of the favorites surviving, some not so much. Looking really forward to uh, the Final Four in New Orleans. going to be a blast, and uh, we'll, we'll see if we can get at least one more classic with uh, three games left on the docket for the season. So literally right before we introduced you, we were in discussion. Um, for years, Peyton and I had always called Tom Izzo Mr. March, just on the basis his teams are always really well prepared by March, the Final Fours, even the one title. But we've discussed that. I think we're changing that moniker, and it's going to Jay right now. Um, he's trying to make it three titles in the last seven years. We were just talking before you came on. Since 2013, Villanova's 20-3 and three in the NCAA tournament. 
in basically the last nine years. Uh, unbelievable what he's done. That is a cultured program. He doesn't have to get the five stars, which he does get the occasional ones, but he just gets guys that know how to play basketball, know how to grind games out when it matters the most. And I, I think he's deserving. What do you think? Do you think he's probably the new Mr. March now? I think, I think he is right there. I think you make a strong case because, you know, you look at some of the teams that advance far into the tournament and you can look at Villanova. They say it in the NBA terms, are you a three and D guy? Villanova is often loaded with guys that can test a lot of shots, which you see the likes of Houston and Texas Tech these last couple of years, especially this tournament. And they have at least one or two playmakers that can create their own shot. You saw before the Justin Moore injury, he was pretty uh, a tremendous two-way player, but Gillespie's been clutched, had a big shot yesterday after the timeout. And then certainly they've had other guys like Samuel step up that I think are always mismatches. And when you got guys that are six, seven, six, eight, can defend the perimeter at times, which is key in the tournament, and can rebound uh, regardless, a lot of you know positionless players. And you can make a case, Jay Wright and Nova has been one of the top teams in the country from a positionless standpoint. Maybe not lower, like you mentioned, like the five stars, but they get plenty of three and four stars that clearly top 20 talent more times than not, if not inside the top 10. And uh, low key, here they are, uh, you know, a decent draw, but they continue to win the close, tough games. And when you play great defense and you hit enough big shots, you're in your premier, you know, program like they've been now the last five, six plus seasons. Um, it's great to see them come through, and I think Jay Wright's kind of had it. Because you saw it you know, about two decades ago. They, they got bumped a few times by Florida and had a couple close calls with North Carolina, lost them in 09 and even 05, a game they probably outplayed the heels at the Carrier Dome, came up short. Obviously, they got a, a little redemption since then, but um, they're looking for a, a third title in six tournaments, which would be uh, you know rarefied air if they can accomplish that. But just to get here, great accomplishment. And it's amazing, before I let Peyton and Phil kind of chime in as well, it's amazing because preseason, when Peyton and I put out our uh, our annual preseason top 25, Villanova was in the top five. We knew the talent with the expectations. Then they come out. They didn't look the greatest against UCLA on the road. They didn't look great against Purdue. Um, and so you kind of started to wonder, well, is Villanova going to be able to do it? This small lineup, they're not shooting the ball well. And man, we should have just relaxed and realized it was November, December. Because once they got in the Big East play, they started clicking, firing all cylinders. And now here they are. It come in as a two seed and they basically roll right through the region. Um, and, and it's what's so beautiful about the culture in that, that program now that Jay Wright's built is they don't mind if they can score an 85, 90 on you, they will, and they'll hit 15 threes. But you watch when we talk about when they beat Houston, yep. that was a low scoring game, but they're so good in these type of environments where if you're going to try to outgrind Villanova, it's just not going to happen. No, it really is tough that, that, that beat them at their game. They can play a slow tempo. And it seems when the shot clock's inside of 10, they, they lose, will, you know, break it to the rim. A lot of, you know, straight line drives and they get a lot of open shooters, but they do the simple things. They get a loose change. Uh, the 50 50s is huge in the NCAA tournament and they get more than their fair share. And uh, when the shot clock's coming down, they usually hit the bigger shots compared to the opposition, but they've been a top five, in my opinion, top 10 program on the defensive end. And then when it comes to high percentage shots, they get lots of open looks get to the free throw line and lose. You can out muscle most teams, which is kind of an underrated thing. It may not be the sexiest thing on paper. They may not look like uh, the most talented team we've seen in the last quarter century plus, but 
Uh, more times than not, they're in that top five, six programs almost every season, and they've been accustomed for top 10 preseason teams, which isn't easy to live up to. But Jay Wright, that stability and accountability that he puts on his team, I would probably put him in the top five category for all the active coaches at the moment. And he's got a chance to, to continue to climb that all-time ladder. So it's going to be very intriguing to see how they match up with Kansas without Justin Moore. And, and... I think we can all agree they've got the best closer this year in college basketball. Because if the game's late, just give it to Colin Gillespie and get the hell out of the way. Yeah. I think the biggest shot of the game yesterday, RW, they, they were, I think it was a two-point lead for Nova after they were pretty much dominating that game uh, fairly thoroughly, you know, leading by double figures nearly. And Gillespie hit a big shot at that timeout to make it a four-point lead. He misses that shot. Who knows if Houston comes down, had a couple lip out. But he's been Mr. Buckets. Even not a great game yesterday, still had one of the bigger shots of the day. Phil, Peyton. So, so, yeah, I don't want to stick too much on Villanova because obviously we got some other teams we want to talk about oh, yeah. here. But uh, can they get it done with Justin Moore being out? I mean, they already kind of lacked a little bit of depth, and that's a huge loss for them. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't like doubting uh, Jay Wright. I didn't have him in my Final Four in many, you know, really in any brackets. So I, I thought they were a, a fair bet for a Sweet 16. And here they are without Justin Moore. Right now I know the experts in the desert have them about four-plus point dogs to Kansas and I'm definitely leaning the Jayhawks at the moment due to their defensive ability they didn't shoot great obviously in that first half against the Canes today uh, but I think you know Kansas's length is gonna I think gonna give Nova some issues and if, it's gonna be an issue I think doubling down on McCormick and I think the ability of that backcourt of Kansas with the emergence of Martin uh, the transfer from Arizona State he's been you know kind of not existing that first half today but really reasserted himself so I don't want to give Nova some more uh, you know bulletin board material because um, I think Justin Moore was arguably their most important player in terms of both ends of the court. Certainly Gillespie, uh, two-time what Biggie's put of the year. I don't love their chances. I think they'll hang in there. I think they'll avoid a blowout. But we saw a couple of years ago, guys, the Jayhawks took one on the chin against Nova in that Final Four. Not saying we're going to get a complete role reversal, but I, I would definitely lean Kansas uh, to win this game by at least a handful Unless we see, you know, big-time performance from Daniels, who likely will assert himself in this lineup. And he's a very capable shooter. He's not afraid of the moment. Uh, but you're going to need Gillespie, Samuels, probably to maybe get close to 50 combined, which is, is a tall task with, uh, you know, premier defensive team Jayhawks. I like KU's chances uh, to play on Monday night, but we've seen Nova win some games as an underdog before, most recently last night. Yeah, we most definitely did, and I agree with you. We'll talk about that. We'll be with that game later on, though. But I do like Kansas' chances against Villanova without Justin Moore. Um, and you mentioned Kansas and the Miami game. Yeah, they shot very poorly in the first half. But I'll tell you what, that second half, we'll talk about it later. They picked Kansas, or they picked Miami on lockdown. 15 points gave up in the second half for uh, Kansas. However, that's not the team I want to talk about. I want to talk about another Final Four team that just clinched their berth, mm. North Carolina. North Carolina, four weeks ago, I was trying to make an argument that North Carolina was not a tournament team. This was before yeah. they beat Duke at Cameron Indoor, before they went in there and beat Duke. I was trying to make an argument, which I had, I think I had a valid one to make, that North Carolina did not deserve to make the tournament because they couldn't, they didn't have any good wins at all. Then they beat Duke, and now they're on this remarkable run. They Defeated number one seed Bale in the second round in a hell of a second half display. Last 10 minutes in overtime. I want you to talk about Hubert Davis and how he turned this year around from beginning of the year. They were not very good. 
And then now they're making now they're pretty much they're in the final four playing Duke. Talk to me about the remarkable one that Hubert Davis in North Carolina has done the second half of the year. Yeah, I mean, from a program perspective, I think I would take this up there with the 2000 Tar Heels. Uh, more talented on paper, but this may be their most impressive Final Four run they've ever had in terms of expectations mixed in with the adversity they faced throughout the season, where many were were doubting. I, I'm not huge into message boards as much these these years, but social media, hard to ignore, where many people were saying, I don't think Hubert's the right guy for the job. Wait, there's still no. message boards? What? <laughs> yeah, right? Back in the early 2000s, those were like before social media even existed. Uh, big time. But yeah, many people, I was not one of those people, but certainly I had question marks about the team's defensive, uh, not so much judgment, but kind of they were disinterested at times, uh, very mass confusion. They were giving up layups, straight line drives, uncontested threes. Really, it was just the games against Miami and Wake that really concerned me. And even Kentucky early on and Pitt, of course, was concerning. But uh, the lack of talent was not something I was concerned about when I when we talked. And you can roll back the film. I said if, if they can beat Duke and have a decent run in the ACC tournament, I think they'll probably be a six seed or at least an eight or nine worst case, and that's where we saw them. But had they had a little you know, beefier of a schedule and maybe shown up a, a little bit a few more times, this was, I thought, no worse than a four or five seed this year with top ten capability. And and here they are. I think, you know, Hubert in the postgame, uh, which Jamie Ertle mentioned, you know, it's all about the players, and that's kind of the class act that Hubert is. Because it was, I think, a lot, he deserves the credit here. To turn on the switch, we talked about pretty much all year with you guys, even the preseason, I would bring up, this team's going to go as far as R.J. Davis and Caleb Love take them. And you can make a case, certainly Davis was just bonkers against Baylor, uh, one of the better game performances of the tournament. And then maybe Caleb Love outdid him the following game against UCLA. And he may be, Caleb Love may be one of the premier players we've seen so far in the tournament, other than maybe Bancaro of Duke, uh, you can give me a couple, but it's a short list. Caleb Love has been up there where I think early in the year, guys, you see so many guards when they go against the trees out of control. We, we see a lot of guards, even uh, Curbelo of Illinois, where they just lose the ball. They can't score when they drive. They can only score on open threes. And sometimes that is Caleb Love's game. But when he heats it up, he's unstoppable. But this tournament specifically, I think he's been tremendous at the dribble drive in terms of getting to five feet and closer in the rim, he's been unbelievable. And as long as him and Davis continue to take care of the ball, they're going to have their chances against Duke. The one stat that I think was huge for them in that win over Duke, still amazing to me the first time in Tar Heels history, they had four players in the same game in the history of the program with 20-plus points in that game. I think they're probably going to need at least two, more likely three of those four again to score. But when you have four dynamic players like Manic, Baycott, Davis, and Love, you, in this, at least in this year, no Baylor Gonzaga like we saw last year, you can match up well with pretty much anybody in the country, and the heels have shown that. Yeah, um, to me, I think the big difference um, from Carolina from four, five, six weeks ago now is the fact that Caleb Love is finally starting to play better, uh, and Brady Manick is monster. Right. I mean, he's playing with so Lights much confidence, so much confidence. We always knew from Oklahoma days that he was coming in to be a stretch four, even a stretch five hit the big threes, but his ability, he's even making back to the basket moves. He's defending at a high level now, helping out with the rebounding. He's doing a lot of big things. Hell, before, um, I think before coming in today, he was averaging like 25 a game in the NCAA tournament so far. North in, Carolina's, yeah. North Carolina had the biggest uh, margin of victory in the tournament. Right. I think we talked about it last week after when we started reviewing the first two rounds. 
um, it's funny, media members like us, we spend all year, we look at these teams, we break these games down, and we'll give our analysis based upon we see. But we always forget the factor that a team can suck or play under par the whole year, but as long as they get in the tournament, it's a new season. And we see this year in and year out, and we always forget about that. And we've seen it with North Carolina. We know they have the talent, and they've gotten the tournament. They got a new lease on life, and they've just ran through everybody. Now, the tournament, the bracket opened up for them. They didn't play a a full-strength Baylor. They avoided Kentucky or Purdue at the bottom part of the bracket. But they still, in their games, they still look damn good. Um, While we've got you for a little bit longer, let's go ahead and get into breaking down some of these games, if you don't mind. Let's go start at the Sweet 16 games. Uh, Where do you guys want to start? You want to start with the North Carolina run in the Sweet 16? Uh, You want to start with St. Peter's? Phil, I'll let you choose. What game do you want to start with in Sweet 16? Well, let's just uh, stick on UNC. They did, yeah. Tar Heels. Okay. Um, so, yeah, North Carolina's Sweet 16 opponent was uh, obviously UCLA. Great game. I thought the the pace of the game was tremendous. We've seen a lot of games in the tournament this season where one team dictates it or the referees, unfortunately, kind of dictate the way the game's called. But I thought this was as fun as game as we've had in the tournament so far. Second half for a long stretch of time, they traded lead back and forth. But my God, Caleb Love was unconscious. Hitting three after three, getting to the rim. And ultimately, he's what did UCLA in in that game. They beat UCLA 73-66. But the game Caleb Love had in the city of brotherly love, if you will, um, he, I thought he was tremendous. I thought this was a fun game all around, though. Yeah. It was it was pretty remarkable. I mean, he had 27 second half points. He was, you know, not asserting himself as much in the first half, which it, it's a challenge at times when you see two point guards, something Roy Williams has always used throughout his career. But now with Hubert taking over, I think that was maybe perhaps the best performance we've seen, certainly in a half, if not maybe in a game, and at least in a winning effort. And we talked about Love and Davis, how pivotal they are, because this team only plays about five, six guys. Maybe seven will get in there. Uh, Puff Johnson's certainly made his role off the bench. But if Love and Davis can get close to 40 a game to combine, uh, they didn't need it today. But against the premier competition, we saw that against UCLA, where he can connect from five-plus feet behind the three-point line in the college game. And, and that's really tough to defend because if you get up on him, he can get by you at 6'4 with a great wingspan. You saw him create today. You saw him against UCLA. He had some impressive up and under moves, put some spin on the ball. And then, oh, yeah, you got Baycott, who plays volleyball in the paint oftentimes. And uh, that's always helpful. Get to the free throw line. They've always been among, other than Michigan State, Carolina's arguably the top program the last decade in terms of offensive rebounding and rebound margin. So uh, when you open those lanes up with only one big as opposed to two back with Roy, that allows more shooters. Enter Brady Manick has entered the chat where he'll get five three the game. <laughs> And he'll take maybe 10 of them. And if he makes five of them, that stretches the field out even more. And that allows Baycott to get to the line. And even if he's only shooting 50%, 60%, that makes Davis and Love even more unstoppable once they get downhill. Dan, I completely forgot you have a, a, another event you need to go to. So we'll, go. Not, we'll not keep you much longer. But I do want to wrap up with this with you. Looking ahead to the Final Four for next week. Uh, we just kind of talked about the breakdown, a little bit of it, who's in what. Give us your, your uh, brief winners of the final four and give us your national championship yeah so i i love kansas i think that would be my lock of these 
uh, at least semifinal games. I like Kansas to win a game, probably low 70s for Kansas, and it'll be tough. Uh, Barmy get a, a big up and back and forth. I like Kansas by about double figures in that national semifinal, where I think Villanova will just have an issue keeping up with the pace, and even if they slow it down, Ultimately, Kansas just too much. McCormick, I think, was a huge, but they were just playing uh, fast break transition, easy buckets in that second half hit against Miami. So I like the Jayhawks against the winner of the Tobacco Road, and I will go on record saying I think the winner of Duke Carolina will cut the nets down. You had to make the pick. It's hard to go against the Dukies at this moment, but I will say that North Carolina, for arguably, right there with Kentucky, arguably, the greatest programs ever, uh, at least since – We've seen the field go down to seeded in 1979, get to 64 and 85. It's it, it, it's amazing to see North Carolina play the I wouldn't say the little brother role, but the underdog role. It's you don't see that very often for maybe the, the best program ever. So I wouldn't put past them to upset the Dukies, but they're going to have to hit double figure threes. And you saw four guys with 20 plus last time they beat them. They're gonna likely gonna need at least three this time. So Love or Davis likely gonna have to go off. They can't stay out of foul trouble. Manic, he's gonna have to have a similar game like he's had pretty much all tournaments. So this game's probably gonna be a classic. Come down to the last shot. I'll go with Duke. Uh, my brain will say. Uh, part of me wants Carolina to, to ruin the surprise again for Coach K, but I'll go Duke, Kansas, and ultimately I think Duke's gonna cut the Nets down. But wouldn't and that would give them six with Carolina. So. That would be a quite, even though Carolina's still now with 21 Final Four. So that would be a good topic throwing Kentucky, of course, there. Uh, I'll go Duke over Kansas, but this has, this could be, we've seen a lot of great matchups at the back of the road. And this, obviously, uh, I pick it in my bracket almost every other year. And of course, the one year I don't, we get it. So, thriller. Right. <laughs> Hey, Peyton, what I heard him say before we let him go is that he thinks it's a repeat of 1991 again when Duke beat Kansas. Yep. That's what he's saying. Uh, that's the last thing. Dan, do you uh, not see my hoodie? The hoodie I got right on and the hat I got on too, man. Like, that's the last thing I wanted to hear come out of your mouth. Hey, you guys could do it. You guys could do it. I, I think Dean Smith got ejected in that game. I'm not mistaken in the loss to Kansas before <laughs> Kansas went down to Duke. So hopefully Hubert can stay in the game here. But, hey, Jayhawks are going to keep this game competitive. Um, it feels a little bit like, uh, what was it, 2012 when Kentucky fell, uh, beat Kansas. Yeah. Oh, you got to mention that too. Well, I know. Uh, I'm telling you, it'll be a much more entertaining game with more points flowing. But I just don't know if Kansas keep up with the way Duke's playing. You got five guys, six guys for Duke right now. I mean, they dropped 15 in their sleep. So can Kansas get a, a you know a, a great game from Brown and get some more bench production uh, other than Martin? If they can, Rock Shaw KU could pull it off. This is the year preseason. I had Kansas losing in my title game to Gonzaga, so throwing Duke as the replacement. Hey, we'll the see. irony, the irony too of that Kentucky Kansas game, it was in New Orleans. Correct. So, Correct. so maybe so maybe Kansas. Maybe Kansas can uh, reverse the voodoo magic down there in Nolens. Peyton, hey. what do you got, Peyton? Just remember the last time Kansas played Duke in the tournament game, we ended up beating them in the Elite Eight. Elite Eight. Eight. And yep. we sent Grayson Allen's ass home for, for good. It's time right. to do the same thing to Coach K. So <laughs> go ahead. I'll be pulled for you guys. Grayson Allen had that ball, I think, went around the rim at yep. the bunker. That's the game. Terrified. That's the game. uh, Skeet McIlew played well. Like he shot his lights out. Yeah, he. Like they thought he was going to play the whole time he was there. Right. Peyton's heart dropped. Heart rate (laughs) dropped. Yeah. All circled. It's it's, going to be fun. 
Dude, yeah. We appreciate the time, Dan. Like I said, we know you got somewhere to be. So uh, you guys can check Dan out at uh, the underscore stats guru on Twitter. And also check out the uh, Sharp Action Show at sharpactionshow.com. And Dan, we appreciate the time as always. Yeah, Dan, guys, keep keep in touch. Appreciate having me on as always. Yeah, what I was going to say is um, this will probably be the last time we have you on, obviously, because the season's wrapping up. But, man, we appreciate you. We call you our ECB's resident bracketologist. Can't wait to team up again next year. We'll have you on multiple times. You're our guy, man. You're our bracketologist, so you're part of the family. Appreciate it. Love you guys. Uh, Enjoy the games next week and Final Four in the title game. Hope your your teams, uh, for Peyton's case, win. But, as always, a pleasure. We'll keep in touch and uh, enjoy the final three games here. Absolutely, guys. Thank you, Dan Rasta. Um, he's been a special guest. Like I said, he really is part of the ECV family now. So yeah, he has no, Josh. Now. Dan is my fucking guy. Like <laughs> if I have a question when I'm writing an article, fucking like about bracketology, anything, just hit Dan up five minutes later. You got an answer. Like Dan well, is shit. The he tags, man. he tags us in everything. Now, if he yeah. posts, he rarely posts any, well, I shouldn't say that he'll post stuff on Twitter, but half the time anymore, he tags us. He's like, make sure that, cause like I said, he's part of the family now. So. He ain't going nowhere. Josh, did you pay him to say that about Kentucky, the last ham, <laughs> and not only that, but Duke? Did you pay him to do that? I I can't discuss NIL rules. Tell me I can't discuss this stuff. So, okay, we'll see. Oh, that. pulling the NIL rules. You sound like Zion's agent. Hey, man. <laughs> <laughs> I can't discuss my uh, – yeah, let's move on. I can't discuss it. So. <laughs> Let's go back to the Sweet 16, though. Um, Carolina, great game over UCLA. Um, we've already kind of spoiled it, but they were going to play the winner of Purdue-St. Peter's. St. Peter's on those magical run. And, guys, Purdue made the same mistake, in my opinion, that Kentucky and Murray State made prior to them, and they came out too relaxed. That's exactly what Kentucky and Murray State did, and Purdue fell in the same trap. They, I thought they, I think they thought that because of their size – and their athleticism and their abilities to score on the offensive end that they can toy with them for a little bit and eventually turn it on. But that didn't happen. You can't let a team like St. Peter's feel like they're in this ball game and Purdue let them hang around, let them hang around. Zach Eady could not finish around the rim. Travion Williams is really good. But they got nothing really out of their guards. Ivy, okay going downhill, making decisions, didn't really score the basketball that well. And St. Peter's did what they did in the first two rounds. When the game got under four minutes, they switched to a matchup zone, and it made Purdue slow down, think too much, move the ball around, not get good shots. And they let them – essentially, it came down – they let them hang around, get too much confidence, and St. Peter's buried them at the end. I really expected Edie to be the difference in this game. Just I didn't think St. Peter's was going to have anybody that could match up with that size. But – it ended up being sort of a detriment to Purdue because the way St. Peter's plays offensively with that sort of five out, you know, all kinds of cuts and stuff like that, they were really able to take advantage of how bad of a defender Edie is in space. They were able to neutralize, you know, his rim protecting ability because they had to, you know, have him to come outside and guard somebody. Um, so I, the size almost worked against Purdue, I thought. Yeah, I agree with that, Peyton. Yeah, not only that, so I ended up watching a little bit of this game because obviously I was watching the Kansas game. Pretty much happened at the same time. So I didn't get to watch too much of the St. Peter's first Purdue game. But the time I did get to watch, Jay Nivey only had nine points in this game, played 36 minutes, eight boards. Anytime I watched him get the ball at the top of the key, I don't even remember who was guarding him. 
he was too nonchalant with the ball and they just allowed him to poke the ball away easily and really forced him to a couple bad turnovers on his play. So I think they did a fantastic job for what I've seen personally of controlling and making Jaden Ivey uncomfortable for this whole game. Yeah, well, no, St. Peter's got – yeah, go ahead, Phil. I was just going to say, Peyton just made a great point, something I've sort of noticed about Ivy this year, is he's very nonchalant a lot of the time. He doesn't have a consistent motor. He's either he, – he flips the switch. He's either nonchalant and then he just takes the fucking game over, but he's never just consistently for 40 minutes just going hard. And, and uh, just – I thought that was a great point by Peyton. Yeah, and I think there's a couple points. To that. I, I think the- – <laughs> Thank you. No, <laughs> I think there's a couple points to that that is on that. One, you got to credit St. Peter's defense because they got, like Peyton said, they got up in Purdue's guards. Like they could not have any airspace. They didn't back off and let Ivy specifically turn downhill and get the motor running. But yeah, he he's too relaxed. I think he's already in NBA mode. And and people, I of course, you know, people overreact instantly right away. I've seen people, specifically Purdue fans on Facebook and Twitter, like, well, Ivy, you know, he should have been – he's a star, right? He should have took over this game, which is true. He should have took over. However, they're also like, well, he's not going to make an NBA. You guys got to understand. In the NBA, there, there's no – you can play a zone, but it's not a traditional zone. You can't camp out in the lane. You, there's defensive rules that open the lane up. Ivy's going to be a really good pro because of his athleticism, his ability to get by somebody. But he, he does need that, that I guess you'd call it Mamba mentality, that ability to go kill somebody, not literally kill somebody, but kill the other team on the floor and end the game, cut their soul out. And he just doesn't – I'm with you guys. He just didn't show that this year, although he did have a really good year. Um, yeah, well, but I'm with, it's so weird. Zach Eady should have dominated this game. And he had a couple early buckets that looked like he might have. But, man, not only defensively, but offensively. He was letting a dude that was eight inches shorter than him push him off the block, affect his shots. Um, Man, just super disappointing. Yeah, and Edie sort of has that same thing that we were just talking about with Ivy is that he doesn't have that consistent motor all the time. You know, we see him show up and play physical in games against Kofi against Kofi and, you know, EJ Liddell and some of those guys, it's almost like he plays up or down to his competition. If he knows he has to get fired up for the matchup and he's playing somebody physical, he can kind of step into that role. But it was, he just kind of expected it to be easy. It looked like. Completely agree. And so Purdue season ends pretty disappointingly. Um, I had them as a title favorite coming into the year, good enough year, but kind of disappointing, especially towards the end of the year. But Purdue fans, not to get too far ahead, because we're going to have plenty of offseason to talk about upcoming season changes, roster, and all that. But I will say, Purdue's got a seven foot one kid from Sweden coming in that is Dirk Nowitzki like. I mean, that kid, if you go watch highlight tapes of him, he, he can back you down. He's got good vision as a seven foot one kid. He can pick and pop. He shoots the three at like 40%. Um, so Purdue's just going to reload on big big seven footers but this one's actually a seven footer who's agile and can step out and stretch so Purdue I think is going to be okay but their season comes to a disappointing end the same way Kentucky's and others did let's go to eight elite eight matchup let's stay right there in the the east region let's stay right there we had just finishing up that we were talking about as we came on air tonight North Carolina St. Peter's we talked about St. Pete, or I was talking about North Carolina avoiding the the same pitfall that Kentucky, Murray State, Purdue did, and boy, they came out and made sure 
made sure St. Peter's knew their place in this game as a 15 seed. North Carolina, from the tip, dominated. Went up 7-0, never looked back. St. Peter's missed a bunch of shots that they were hitting in the tournament. Wide open threes, a bunch of layups. But North Carolina's size just killed them. And like we talked about with Dan, Caleb Love is looking like a superstar finally. Something happened to him in this tournament. He looks great. Well, that first game against Marquette, he had like 25, and then this game he had 30. He's just a different player than what he was from beginning of the year to now. He's just – he's hitting shots. He's doing a better job taking care of the ball. And Brady Manick, Josh, you mentioned it with talking with Dan. Brady Manick, I think, is a difference maker for this team. Uh, R.J. Davis, obviously, he plays great. And I know Phil talked about him a couple weeks ago, that if he starts playing at that level they did against Duke, then Carolina couldn't make a deep run in the tournament. And I agree with that. But I think Brady Manick's definitely a huge piece to that puzzle as well. And it's because his ability to make shots, his ability to that pick and pop that they do is unguardable most of the times. He bring, With his ability to hit shots, it brings um, the opposing team's bigs out of the paint to try to guard him. And that's hard to do. So Brady Manick has been ungodly here lately for Carolina. And, and before Phil goes, I don't know if you, I don't know if you guys have noticed the small tweak he's made this year from his Oklahoma days till now, Oklahoma, he was a great three point shooter, but most of them were wide open off pick and pops or transition. He's hitting in dudes faces. Now he is absolute. It doesn't matter if you can't get a hand literally in his face, he's shooting over you and more than likely making it. Yeah, well, and particularly for a matchup like this, he gives them that dynamic where, you know, you cannot double Baycott. You know, if you give help on Baycott, he's going to knock down threes in the corner. And you see, I mean, you seen it. You went four for six today because St. Peter's had to give help on Baycott. Baycott goes for 20 and 22, just a, an absolute monster down. Like, you know, he did exactly sort of what we thought Edie would do and just took this game over. But uh, to y'all's point on Caleb Love, I really think the change – and I, I mentioned it last week is making RJ Davis the primary ball handler where Caleb Love can go out, does not have to worry about getting everybody else involved and can, I mean, and he still gets some assists just because he has the ball in his hands so much, but he can just go out and worry about getting his, you know, get his 17 shots up and, and be the scorer that they need and let RJ Davis try to get these other guys involved. And, and I think that's and, really been the turning point for them. And that's a great point. I think that is a tremendous point. Just a small switch. It, it's kind of what Kentucky did back in the day when they took um, they took um, Isaiah Epps or Anthony Epps off the ball. He was the point guard early on. Took him off the ball in 1996 and switched him to a two guard, and it changed the flow. Oh, I'm sorry. They took Tony Delk off the point guard, put Isaiah or Anthony Epps there and then allowed Delt to hunt his shot. And then you've seen his ability hit all them three-point shots, hit the the NCAA tournament finals record, whatever it was, like not seven, eight, nine three-pointers. Kind of the same thing there, so that's a great point. Also, if you want an idea of how hot and comfortable and how much Caleb Love is feeling his shot, there was a shot early in the first half tonight against St. Peter's. He hit that son of a gun from Pittsburgh. Just right, it just pulled up in a dude's face, hit it from Pittsburgh. And I also think one thing that helps, and this isn't a knock on Roy, but just to give Hubert a little credit, is Hubert has unleashed these guys a little bit. I think Caleb mm -hmm. Love was scared to be this kind of scorer while Roy was Agreed. there. And, and Hubert has taken you know the, the reins off of him a little bit and said, hey, go do what we need you to do. You know, We don't have eight guys that can score the ball. We have maybe three or four, and so we need the 20 points out of you. And I think that's been you know just another huge thing for him. 
I completely agree. That's a great point. And plus, they're running the offense that we're begging Kentucky to run. Four out, one in, have a stretch big that can make the defense come out and open up driving lanes for your athletic guards that can go in the rim and finish or distribute. Um, North Carolina, I'm going to text you guys in the group chat, and I want to hear it on air. To me, I think there's a comparison between them right now and the 2014 Kentucky team. Both of them came in highly touted, high, ranked really high in the rankings preseason. Both underperformed for the most part of the year, but at the back end, late February, they figured something out, and then now we've seen them in March. Both of them an eight seed. Both of them had to go through their one seed and make this run to the final four. Kentucky made it to the title game, lost to UConn, um, the jury's still out. We'll have to find out next week with North Carolina. But I think there's a lot of similarities between 2014 Kentucky with Julius Randle and the Harrison Twins and this North Carolina team this year. Yeah, I think the trajectory of the seasons is is very similar. Like you said, the only the only uh, you know difference I'd bring up is I do think that Kentucky team top to bottom was a little bit more talented. Um, mm-hmm. Just as far as guys going to the NBA and stuff like that. But no, absolutely. The trajectory is very much the same. Like you said, you come into the season with these high expectations. Um, you know, don't, you don't have a terrible year, but they're not to the expectations that everybody had. And then to just, you know, sort of turn that switch on right at the end and, and go on this run. I, I think that's a pretty great comparison. One point in the season, and I'm glad you mentioned like this, the turn the gears or the flip the switch on second half of the year, because there's a point in time where when they would lose, they would lose big. They got rolled by Kentucky um, in that neutral site game, 98 to like 65 or something like that. Got rolled by, I think, Notre Dame, or maybe not. They got yeah, Notre Dame by a couple teams. Wake Forest, Notre Dame, Duke. They, I mean, they were getting slaughtered by. Duke. They would when they would lose, they would lose by twenty or more. They would lose big, and then it's like they flipped the switch, like you said, Phil. I do see a lot of similarities in that 2014 Kentucky squad until to this uh, 2022 Carolina squad. I see a lot of similarities, and I think the difference maker, the most consistent, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, the most consistent player for Carolina has always been Amando Bricat. He, what he had, like, what'd you say, felt 20 and 22 or something like that in this game? Uh, yeah, 22 boards, 20 points. He had 15 rebounds in the first 10 minutes of the first half. He dominated this game. And I do see a lot of simulators between these two squads. And you got if uh, Carolina just passed Kentucky for the most all-time tournament wins. Um, that's not the only record Kentucky lost this weekend we'll talk about. But we do have to give credit to St. Peter's in this all-time run. The, the deepest run of 15 seed has ever made in the NCAA tournament. Shaheen Holloway is a star in the making in the coaching world. If Seton Hall has any sense, by tomorrow, by tomorrow, they're throwing the, the truck, they're backing the Brinks truck up for Shaheen Holloway to bring him back home to Seton Hall. But real quick, we got to give some love to St. Peter's. Man, they captured the hearts of America like March always seems to produce. And what a damn run they made. It's absolutely. I mean, everybody loves the Cinderella and uh, usually the clock strikes midnight in about the second round. So to see them get to the Elite Eight, um, I don't know if you guys have seen some of the videos of how tiny that campus is. I mean, it's literally like a five minute walk around the campus. It might be half a block. So like just to see a school that small, a 15 seed make it this far is awesome. I do have to say, though, that I'm I don't like seeing runs to the final four. You know, I want to see the best four teams in the final four. So I was happy to see UNC pull it out. 
Yeah, and I think that's a weird dichotomy. We love the upsets, but we only like it for like the first round because when it gets down to this point, we want to see the best teams play. But sometimes it happens like that, and they had a hell of a run, man, a hell of a run. And how about this? They've got they beat in this tournament alone. They've beaten more one, two, or three seeds than Gonzaga has in their history. It, I feel I know you're doing a little change over there, but I just said. In this run this weekend, or these past two weeks, St. Peter's has beaten more one, two, or three seeds combined than Gonzaga has ever. They've beat two of them. They beat Kentucky as a two. They beat Purdue as a three. They've beat two of them. Gonzaga's never beaten a one, two, or three seed. Yeah, I heard that stat the other day. I guess I'm the resident Gonzaga defender on this podcast. I think that's that's what the roles have become here. So I, I'm just going to say that uh, – Gonzaga has been to two more title games than St. Peter's has in the past five years. And I think that's a little bit more important, but um, no, I mean, I'm not, I'm not hating on St. Peter's in any way. That's, that, that's a hell of a stat. And uh, it just, you know, it's not like they got lucky to go on this run. They, they went through some great team, you know, Murray state was 31 and two or whatever it was. So they had about as tough of a run to the elite eight as you could get. So I I do want to give all the credit in the world to them for that. Well, moving on to the next game, let's talk about the other Sweet 16 matchup. And, Phil, you kind of just mentioned them. Let's talk about Gonzaga getting beat by Arkansas. Let's talk about how a couple weeks ago on the tournament special, you said Gonzaga was going to win the national championship (laughs) and shut all the Gonzaga haters up. So I got a question for you. Since they got beat, didn't even make it to the Elite Eight, didn't even make it to the Final Four, am I still allowed to come on this podcast and talk shit about Gonzaga? Can I still do it? I mean – you can still do it. It's a free country. But again, I'm going to say the seven straight Sweet 16s, two title appearances, three Elite Eights, all of that, or the two title appearances, three Elite Eights, all in the last five years. Um, it's hard to win the championship. It's hard to do it. They've made the tournament 23 straight years. They've been a number a number four seed or better, I think, like 12 straight years. So I'm not saying that Gonzaga is, you know, to the level of Duke or those teams, but to say they're not a top 10 program to, to give them all this hate. Like I, I have to call out one person specifically. That's never going to hear this, but fuck them. Anyway, Keyshawn Johnson on Keyshawn J will and max the other morning was talking about how, because of their tournament history, they shouldn't get number one seeds anymore. Like what oh, the fuck are, what the fuck are you talking about? Come that's on. not, it, that's not it, how that works. That's not how seeding works. No, and, it's, and that's, a, it's an, it's an individual season by season. Yeah. and But that's where I run into the issue with Gonzaga hate. You know, if you have reasonable Gonzaga hate, cool. But when I hear people talking about shit like that or, you know, saying that they don't play anybody all year, they play a super tough non-conference schedule pretty much every year. Um, I, I just think a lot of the criticisms of them aren't warranted. If you don't like them, you know, great. Fucking same thing as not liking Duke or whatever. But just a lot of the criticism for me is unwarranted. No, I get that. And I don't – I'm in a weird spot. I don't like – I'm kind of neutral on them for the most part. I do get annoyed sometimes because of the lack of competition that they don't have to face. And it's not their fault. I'm not – I've never blamed them for that. But we have all these other power conferences going through the meat grinder from January until March. And But, but yeah, November, December, they load up as best they can because they know they have to. Um, I do. I would like to see them. We we had discussion yesterday, Peyton, where 
everybody's like, oh, they should move the Pac-12. Well, guys, they can't move the Pac-12 because they don't have football. And football dictates everything in college sports. But I do think a, a better move, if they could possibly do it, is move to the Mountain West. Because there, at least, you would get qual- – now, would they still probably run the Mountain West every year? Probably. Nine out of ten years, they're probably going to win it. But – you're going to get better competition, and I think that'll help shut some people up a little more because they'll have to play San Diego State twice, Colorado State twice, UNLV, Boise, uh, Boise Wyoming, uh, et cetera. They'll have better depth in the conference and more opportunities to potentially lose as opposed to just running through uh, San Diego. Now, you know? one a random thing I want to bring up that I think would maybe help some of these mid-major teams too is – and doing a, the bracket buster again, but yeah. not even necessarily just a one game thing, you know, maybe making it three games and in, in the middle of February and giving these teams a, a chance to get battle tested for the tournament, be a chance to bulk up, you know, their resume to get better seating and stuff. But then that sort of, you know, there's, it's always a criticism that Gonzaga, you know, and some of these other schools play tough teams at the beginning of the season. Well, it gives them that chance to say, well, we played some tough teams at the end of the year too. Um, so I just I think that would actually you know be really helpful for not only Gonzaga but you know the Mountain West and some other mid to major conferences. Yeah, I love I love the bracket busters. I don't know why exactly they did away with that, but we used to get some fun match. We'd get like Murray State versus uh you know Wichita State before they made the the jump up in conference. So I, I like that idea. I actually like the idea of you know how the the SEC Big Twelve is right in the middle of February. Well, I, nobody wants to see a, or a WCC versus an ACC, but I'd like to see Gonzaga figure out a way to, specifically them, figure out a way to maybe cut one of the games out in November, December, and push it back, load it towards February, find a program, and add it in there. I think that'll help out as well. Yeah, sort of like, you know, Duke and St. John's used to always play a very random, like, February non-conference game, something like that. Yep, complete, I think that would be perfect for them. Yeah, as do I. Now let's talk about this Arkansas-Gonzaga game since we spent this whole time talking about Gonzaga <laughs> and not mention a damn thing about Arkansas who won this game, by the way. First of all, let me mention this. J.D. Note is a hell of a player. He had 21-6-6. and I think he's a fantastic player. He's a lot of fun to watch. But kind of like what I said last week with James Akinjo, he almost cost him this game with some of the dumb shot selections he had late in the game. He almost shot him completely out of this game. I thought at one point Gonzaga was going to win just because of how bad um, Jote Note's uh, shot selection were in the about five minutes ago in the second half. Jalen Williams, though, was a difference maker for me in this Absolutely, game. Absolutely, yep. He had 15 points, 12 rebounds, probably three charges he probably took in that game. At least a couple I know for sure he took. He was a difference maker defensively and offensively. And the refs was so bad in this game. Chet Holgum should have never fouled out. I don't oh. like Gonzaga, but he should have never fouled out that game. That last call that they called against him to get his fifth foul was absolutely ridiculous. So I feel for him. However, I'm a huge fan of the, I'm a huge fan of Eric Musselman for a reason. He was celebrating. This game was very fun to watch. I'll let you guys take over for this, though, so you can get your little tidbits in and, what, and preview and uh, review on this game. But first of all, what a game. No, yeah, that was a tremendous game. Um, and, and pretty much everything you said is right. Jalen Williams was phenomenal. I think we even when we previewed it last week, we said um, he would have to be big in this game. And his, his size and 
agileness, or I guess agility would be the right word. His agility at seven foot almost is a huge plus. And they neutralized Gonzaga's offense, great transition defense. They hit some shots. And they did what Memphis couldn't. We, Phil, we talked about it. If you're going to beat Gonzaga, you got to build a cushion and hold on. Basically, hold on for dear life because you know Gonzaga is coming. And as soon as Chet fouled out, they weren't getting a whole lot from anybody else. Timmy wasn't his normal self in this game. Neither was Nimhard, to be completely fair. And Arkansas made the right plays down the stretch and was able to suck the life out of the game for the big upset. And, yes, Arkansas got a very favorable whistle in this game. A very favorable whistle. Um it was pretty obvious at one point they they got a pretty pretty uh, pretty favorable call I guess we'll just keep it at that but like you said JD Note 21 points even with the bad decision making at the end and they just they were a hard matchup we knew that they were a hard matchup the way they were rolling they turned their season completely around we had them left for dead in the middle of January and then they in the year off winning 17 and 19 or whatever it was and it, great win for Arkansas, man. Great win, big time upset, and like you said, Eric Musselman's the man. Absolutely, Musselman for me is probably a top five coach in the country. Um, obviously, he has the NBA chops, but uh, Josh, you mentioned it. The one thing that was huge for me in this game was Arkansas's transition defense. They just didn't allow Gonzaga to get out and run the way they normally do. Um, JD Ote did everything he could, as Peyton mentioned, to, to probably lose this game. I mean, he goes nine for 29, two for 12 from three. Uh, Peyton mentioned just the crucial turnovers late in the game. Um, this was the kind of game that really worried me um, that JD Note would have, and they were still able to overcome it. Um, you mentioned Jalen Williams was just huge. Uh, you know, he was the stretch big. He, he may be, I think Peyton, you texted this to the group chat, but he might be the best charge taker in the country. Yep. I think he's oh, yeah. and, and like legit charges. He, yeah. Yes. No, yeah. sometimes some sometimes he can flop a little bit, but most of those charges he took was they was clean. He'd beat him to the whistle for like the last second. He would just step in and it'd be clean. He has which like is, 53 charges this season. Which is super impressive for a dude that big. Normally we talk about guards or wings sliding in taking charges. Normally guys who are 6'10 don't like hitting the ground like that. And he's taken almost 60 charges this season. It's remarkable, and it's a difference maker. It really is a difference maker because you have to think twice before coming in the lane, no, not knowing if that dude is going to slide over. And I think you think about that other instead of thinking about finishing your shot. Um, so, yeah, huge. And l let's talk about the other game in that region, though. We had three Texas Tech, two Duke. Phil, you're the ACC guy. You write for Ball Durham or you contribute to BallDurham.com, a Duke website. So let's start with it. Duke was down at half and had an historic second half shooting against the best defense in college basketball. Yeah, I think this game played out the way a lot of people, you know, thought it might or who were worried about Texas Tech. It was more about Texas Tech's inability to kind of keep up with Duke in that second half. You know, Duke. It was just hitting on all cylinders, as you mentioned, scored damn near 50 in the second half. Um, and they have five or six guys. We've talked about it. They have five or six guys who can score. So even if you have a great defense, it's just really tough to negate all of those guys. Um, they have size. Jeremy Roach has just been unbelievable. Ooh, He's been boy. so good, uh, which is which is amazing for them because, you know, it, halfway through the year, it looked like, you know, he may not be asked to come back even if he wanted to. 
Um, and at this point, you know, he could probably be a first round pick in the NBA if he decides to go. Um, but yeah, it was just Texas Tech played as good a defense as they could for the first 20 minutes. Duke's pros sort of overcame them in the second half. And then Texas Tech just didn't have the offensive firepower to keep up. Well, we talk about it. It goes back to the article I written, which I'm going to bring up when we get to the final four, because it's something interesting I want to talk about. But it goes back to the article I written the defense will get you there and you can play as great as defense as you want, but sometimes guys just hit shots. And if a team is going to hit 71% of their shots, guys, those aren't all wide open shots. It's not shooting practice, especially against the number one defense in the nation that hangs their hat on defense. Duke just hit shots. Jeremy Roach, AJ Griffin, Paolo Bancaro's playing like a top three NBA draft pick. And, and, um, Wendell Moore has been a lot better here lately. And then you can't forget Mark Williams. Maybe if Oscar Shibway didn't exist, he would probably get the, the most improved player in college basketball this year. Because his ability, we've talked about it all year, Phil. I know especially with the two of us have talked about it. His turnaround this year from a guy who is just there to kind of block shots to now you can, he does everything. He'll go block a shot on one end, run the floor, beat the big down there, post up in the middle of the lane, and dunk on somebody. It's tremendous, his uh, his turnaround. And Duke just, I mean, they hit shots. That's all you really can say in that game. Yeah. Um, the difference maker for me in the second half, Texas Tech went up 47-40, to 40, and then Coach K decided to go to a 2-3 zone. Yep. And that shut Texas Tech completely down they shot 31 percent as a total from three they could not hit shots and they didn't have a guy like duke does when paula bancaro to go get them a bucket when they need to paula bancaro jeremy roach mark williams the three players that i want to give huge tremendous props to in this game because those three played absolutely tremendous jeremy roach getting to the basket finishing over some tough time uh, some tough defenses from texas tech Paula McCarron hitting some clutch threes there late to really seal a deal for Tech for Duke. And Mark Williams defending, blocking shots, controlling the paint was incredible. Those two guys impressed the living shit out of me. This, I think, me personally, this is the best I've seen Duke play. If you want to stretch it to the Kentucky game, that's fine. But I really say since that Gonzaga game when they beat Gonzaga, this is the best I've seen them play in a very while, in a very long time. Yeah, that Phil, I know you got some more on it real quick, but that 2-3 call, and he ran it, we'll talk about in the lead eight game. Uh, switching that 2-3, it's like these teams just, I guess, don't expect or have never ran against a 2-3, and you can tell the Bayheim influence on Coach K here lately because he was – 20 years ago, if you tried to get Coach K to run his zone, he would have laughed at you. He would have went down <laughs> – yeah. he would have went down losing playing man-to-man, but – right call going to the zone because Texas Tech had a hard time figuring it out. Well, and the the only thing I wanted to bring up was just another adjustment they've made is they're finally not playing Keels as much. Like, he, he's been forcing Keels so heavily into the rotation and uh, only plays 14 minutes in that Texas Tech game, but he has to play his best five players. And I think he's finally getting to the point in the season where he's realizing that he, he just has to keep Keels off the court, and it's got to be Roach, Griffin, Boncaro, uh, Williams, and more. Um, because Keels just he he can't be the primary ball handler. He's not a great shooter. I mean, he's a great athlete, but he's not ready to contribute as a basketball player to a national championship team. Which is so weird because when we came on at the beginning of the year when they beat Kentucky in that great game to open the year up, we raved over Trevor Keels. 25 points, his athleticism and size and strength. And we thought this dude looks like a for sure lottery pick. 
But you're right. I don't know. He just outside that Kentucky game at the start of the year, he's not really been that player ever since. And uh, Roach and Griffin and, and all the other guards have really stepped up and carried Duke. But it moves us to lead eight game, Arkansas Duke. Winner goes to the final four, Coach K's final ride. And Arkansas held tough for about 15 minutes, and then Duke got their footing. Went to the zone pretty early in this one, and again, Arkansas could not buy a bucket. Williams was pretty good again in this one, but man, it, it, Mark Williams dominated this game, and Duke, they were just on another level. To me, when we talk about the Final Four here in a minute, they look like a team that's going to win a national title and send Coach K out with another one. Yeah, and if you would have told me that, you know, after that UNC loss, I would have said you were crazy because they were not playing good, good basketball then. But they've sort of been this ebb and flow team all year. You know, after the first UNC win, we had Jeff Goodman and John Rothstein and people on Twitter saying, you know, this this is by far the best team at their best. And and I think they were right then. And then they went on that, you know, three or four game stretch where they just weren't very good. And I think you're back to seeing that this team has every single piece that it takes to win a national title. When they're hitting on all cylinders, I don't think that there's anybody in the country that can compete with them. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I agree 100%. Their best is probably better than everyone's best, and it has been all season. Yeah, I think that's – I think it kind of sums it up. Uh, so Duke on another Final Four, which sets up a crazy historic matchup we'll talk about. Let's move to the right side of the bracket, though, in the south. We had one Arizona against five Houston. Boy, oh, boy. Houston 72, Arizona 60, Kelvin Sampson. There's no way in hell. We kept two months ago, Phil, when we would do our power rankings and debut them, we kept dropping them because we were like, well, they're without their two key guys, and eventually the, they're going to falter. And then we seen Memphis beat them two times, and we're like, well, here it goes. And it, I, I don't know, man. He's a genius. Like, Kelvin Sampson is a basketball savant. And his dudes just play so damn hard. That defense is physical and nasty and gritty. And all it takes is for them to hit a couple shots because if they can get ahead of you, they will suck the life out of the game because how how defensively connected they are and their their physicality. And this is what they did to Arizona. Arizona did not look like the Arizona we had seen coming into the tournament, and Houston took full advantage of it. Uh, what else can you say about Kelvin Sampson other than he should probably get more consideration for national coach of the year than what we maybe give credit for? Cause name, name one other program coming into this tournament that could do what they're do what they did without two of their top guys. Yeah. I mean, what they do defensively is, is unbelievable. I mean, I saw it firsthand, you know, being a fan of Illinois, but then they did the same exact thing to Arizona's bigs in this one. You know, they get in there, they make bigs uncomfortable, double teams, force turnovers. Uh, like you said, they just choke the life out of the game. They don't give you any space, particularly at guard. I mean, we've seen Ben Matherin, four for 14, two for seven from the free throw line, um, only one turnover, but they, they were just in his grill all night long, not giving him a second to breathe. Um, to Bellis with four turnovers. They, they just – it's pressure nonstop all game long um, and not necessarily in the traditional, you know, full court press. But as soon as you get inside half court, they're just locked in on you, man. And it, it's exhausting. It's hard to play that way for 40 minutes. Not only that, but if their defense is locked in like it was in this game, 
and they're hitting shots like they did. They shot 45% from three in this one. It's tough to beat a team like that. So, bravo to Houston. This I did not expect Houston. I, th I thought Houston would keep it close. I thought it would be a good game. But I figured with Benedict Matherin and just Arizona's depth, we controlled this game and really pull it out the victory. I was hella wrong on this. What a display by Kelvin Sampson in Houston. And yeah, one more and thing thought, real quick. Just they've been super impressive on the boards. You know, we've talked about their guard yeah. play even since they've been struggling, but they out rebounded Illinois on Sunday and then out rebounded Arizona in this game. Come down with 12 offensive boards. There's there's no way anybody predicted going into that game that they were going to out rebound Arizona. Well, we've talked about, I've said for years, rebounding is effort. It's more about effort and position than it is about physical talent. And Houston just goes to the glass like their life depends on it. And I thought Arizona in this matchup, their size would prevail, and I was wrong. And the other Sweet 16 matchup in this region, the same thing. We had Michigan versus Villanova. I predict Michigan would get the win or the upset here because of their size. Villanova just spreads you out. They used their guards to their advantage. Colin Gillespie was phenomenal in this game again, and they just grinded out Michigan. Michigan's a tough-minded team. We've seen them how they beat Tennessee, seen them how they beat Colorado State, two very physical teams, and they could not match the same type of effort, and they basically could not guard the smaller lineup of Villanova. Villanova moves to the lead eight, winning 63-55 over Michigan. But it's the same story like we talked about with Dan. It's a cultured program that expects this every single game, every single year. They just grind you out, and that that type of play is exhausting, like you said about Houston. Smaller team, it doesn't matter because they're going to find a way to win. Well, and just real quick, you made a great point about the program, but Kelvin Sampson had that great quote the other day about how they built that program. And, you know, we don't water the leaves, we water the roots. And that's exactly how they're built, man. They have stronger roots in what they, you know, do defensively and offensively than anybody in the country. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's not much more to be said about that. Peyton, you got anything on this Villanova beating of uh, Michigan? Yeah, Jermaine Samuels, 22 and 7, 22.7 rebounds. Not only that. But they, Villanova as a team shot 30% from three, and they still beat a tough, goody Michigan squad. That's impressive. Villanova has a chance to win the national title. And Jay White, I agree. Phil mentioned it, and me and Josh talked about this last night um, when we were hanging out with a friend. I said to Josh that Coach K, as soon as he retires, Jay White's the guy. Jay White is Coach K's replacement for next year. And he's the best. I think, without a doubt, he's probably the best coach in college basketball right now, and he will be for like the next, next decade until he retires. I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that. Now, does he ever get to the point that people hate him like Coach K? I don't know. I think he's just such a likable dude. That's right. I, I, that's exactly right. I think there's something to, about him because he doesn't whine and complain. He's not fiery on the sideline. He's not really in the official's ear, kind of like Coach K is. And ESPN, the machine's not shoving him down your throat either. So I, I think that goes – uh, for him as opposed to against him. Well, yeah, I'll tell you what. He's not going to give the Big East any love. They're on Fox. 
No. Well, well, <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. I'll answer that question next week. And if Villanova beats Kansas again, knocks them out of the tournament, then I'm going to say I hate fucking Jay Wright and fuck him. But as of now, no, I like Jay Wright. He's a good – he's a hell of a coach. Well, let's go to this Elite Eight matchup that happened last night. Houston, Villanova, winner goes to the Final Four. Houston in back-to-back Elite Eight games for the first time since the early 80s, early to mid-80s. And we just talked about it. two very cultured programs, physical, uh, defensive minded. And it was an ugly game. Like, let's not kid ourselves and say it was this high scoring, free flowing, beautiful basketball. But Villanova wins 50 to 44. In the process, they lose Justin Moore, which is a massive blow to the Villanova Wildcats. But, you know, these teams combined for six of 41 from the three point line. Houston hit one three-pointer. Villanova, 15 of 15 from the charity strike. Perfect from the foul line. Um, It it was just one of those games. I think we probably all could have expected it with these two teams, the way they like to play. Villanova really, six-point game, but they really kind of, I felt like kept that separation most of the second half. It, It never got crazy out of hand. It was always sort of close, but it was always like a two, three possession game. Yeah, and just because of the the nature of this game, you know, as low scoring as it was, that that six points, like you mentioned, kind of felt like 10 or 12, just because it didn't ever feel like either team was going to be able to go, um, you know, three or four possessions straight getting a bucket. So, uh, yeah, it just that whole second half, it, it wasn't a blowout by any means, but it never felt like Houston was really, you know, knocking on the door of taking this game. Houston, after shooting 45% from three in the – who did they just uh, – the Arizona game, excuse me. They went from shooting 45% from three to shooting 20 attempts from three, hitting one of them. That's 5%. This game was ugly to watch, but that just shows how great Villanova is as a team. They can win it ugly, and they can win it big and have a great game. They can, they just win no matter what, and that just shows the display of Jay Wright and Villanova's program. Well, I think it shows more so the importance of the three-point line because – if you, most teams anymore try to take 23s a game on the whole, and you've got to hit at least a handful of them. If you're only hitting one of them, you don't win a whole lot of ball games. You can stay close, but you can't win games without hitting at least three. I think three's the magic number. That's still on the low end of the spectrum, but you've got to at least hit three. You got to get nine to 12 points in the three point line, and Houston hit one three point shot in this game. If they hit a couple more, this game's in overtime. But Villanova, big at the charity stripe. Again, that loss of Justin Moore, though, is going to come back as a massive blow to them in the Final Four. But we have three of the four Final Four set. Let's move down to the Midwest region where we saw um, we saw Kansas and Providence in that first game. Kansas wins 66-61. They were up. It looked like they were going to put it on cruise control, and Providence came all the way back, took the lead, and then Kansas responded nicely. Peyton, let's talk about your boys. And with this win, overtake Kentucky for the all-time wins leader. Before I go into this game, I got a little tidbit for you guys. A little special request I had that literally just happened about five minutes ago, so listen to this. Corey, Phil, and Josh, a.k.a. the three blind mice, (laughs) a.k.a. Larry, Curly, and Moe. How in the hell you guys going to pick Providence over my Jayhawks? Y'all ain't watching the same team I'm watching. Also, hey, Floppy and Remy, we trust. 
Rock chop till I can't walk, baby. See ya. So <laughs> uh, after the final four of the Elite Eight match with Miami, I texted him and hey, like, can you? I, these fucks, I had a one v three them last week. They all picked put Providence to beat Kansas, and I told them wasn't going to happen, and they still wouldn't listen to me. Damn it! So I need you to bring in a little tidbit and send him the thing for me. And he's like, okay, say that less. was Tyler. That was Tyler Cook for those who maybe not know. By the way. Yes, another Jayhawk fan who I was going to call last week when I was trying to 1v3 y'all, and I didn't have time. But I had time this week. Now, Kansas, like you said, they were up 26-17 at halftime. If Remy Martin didn't play the way he did in that first half, did we probably would be losing. Honestly, yeah. if he didn't play the way he did the whole game, Kansas would not be – Kansas would be back in Lawrence right now. Probably would have got beat by Providence. But Remy Martin showed – out 60 or excuse me 23 points seven rebounds three assists coming off the bench i can't tell you how impressive this kid was in this game if it wasn't for him we would have definitely lost and not only just him but the play of Jalen wilson he missed a couple of layups matter of fact i think he missed about four or five layups just point blank just missing them but he had 16 points 11 rebounds, and defensively, he had some major, major stops defensively within a couple minutes of the game. They really sealed the deal for us. This game was stuck in the mud. No team couldn't really find a rhythm offensively. By the way, Providence, 17.4% from the three-point line. Kansas, 14.3% from the three-point line. If that doesn't tell you the display of off or the display of really defense and just not being able to hit shots does, I don't know what does. Yeah, Providence, yeah, Providence late in the game, too. They're down a couple possessions, and they were still pretty much in the game in the last four. They didn't have to settle for threes, but I thought they they found themselves rushing and settling, and that's not their game, Phil. We've watched them all year. Them settling for rush jump shots from the three-point line is not how they play. Um, and it came back to bite them. I, I felt really felt in those uh, situations they should have been more um, – more patient and still attack the rim like they like to go inside the Nate Watson Durham to the rim and I thought Durham forced a lot there late as well trying to take over didn't work um, and you got to give credit to Kansas Remy Martin's been phenomenal here in this tournament Christian Braun his ability as a two-way player defensively and leading the break hitting jump shots and attacking the rim has been monster for Kansas and again, you got to give Kansas credit plus they took the all-time wins leader from Kentucky by one game at the time it's now two games we'll talk about, but that that has not changed hands since Kentucky from, took it from North Carolina in the 1995-96 season. So it's been a long time. Um, Bill Self has made up in his 17 years at Kansas now, has made up, I think they said like 44 games. They were in third place all time behind Kentucky and North Carolina. 44 games in like 17 years is ungodly. That shows the consistency under Bill Self at Kansas. Yeah, absolutely. Especially considering that it's not like Kentucky and North Carolina have had a ton of down years in that time. You know, there's you know there's a little you know rough stretch for Kentucky, but that's about it. Um, but back to this Providence game real quick. You know, Providence just you know kind of shot themselves out of it in the first half, and then in the second half, you know, Nate Watson was dealing with some foul trouble here and there, was only able to play 22 minutes. Um, I think that was a key, but Josh, you mentioned it. We sort of expected, you know, when we predicted this victory for Providence last week, we expected it to be a close game and we thought Providence's experience and, you know, ability to get those clutch buckets were going to be the difference. And 
like you said, they were just settling for contested threes. It didn't really feel like Durham, you know, was getting to the bucket the way he normally does at the end of games and getting to the free throw line. Um, it just, it, it played out exactly the opposite of how I thought it would. I was, uh, I was wrong. I can't say anything else. Yeah. And just like we did for St. Peter's Shaheen Hollow, we've got to give a lot of love to our guy, Ed Cooley, uh, Providence first regular season, big 10 or big East crown ever that make it sweet 16 tremendous job by Ed Cooley and company at Providence. I think they should have a lot of momentum moving forward, hopefully for that program and keep this going from here on out. So a lot of congratulations to Ed Cooley, but the other who would Kansas play in the elite eight. We had an Iowa state in Miami, Phil, your Miami Hurricane backcourt dominated this game. They beat Iowa State 70-56. Man, you should have told us earlier in the year that you loved this backcourt so much. I might have listened uh, I mean, a little bit more. I didn't really love this backcourt that much for most of the regular season, to be honest. And then uh, the ACC tournament, I felt like they turned a little bit of a corner as far as getting more consistent play out of Wardenburg. Um, and, you know, just some kind of pure dumb luck on my part of calling this one. But Let's not kid ourselves either. You know, Iowa State just could not shoot the rock in this one. Their their guards particularly, Tyrese Hunter, six for 14, one for four from three. Brockington, five for 15, one for four from three. Um, just turning the ball over, uh, which was partial. You know, it was Miami playing well, but uh, Iowa State just did not show up to play in this one. Yeah, Miami, I thought they they got ahead and were able to push the action and keep it stretched enough. I thought their backcourt was really well, or really good, and it set them up the lead-eight matchup today in Chicago against Kansas, and Kansas jumped them from the word go. Uh, they got production from David McCormack early, and in the second half, it was Prison Mitch with like four blocks in the game, rebounding the ball. Who would ever thought that – the 18th year senior <laughs> uh, prison <laughs> Mitch would have defended the rim. Like he's Willie Cauley Stein. What the hell is going on? But Kansas, uh, Kansas extends that. Now they are two games up on Kentucky in the all time wins list, make it to another final four. And yeah, rock chalk. They, they were down at half 35, 29 and put a run. Peyton alluded to it earlier. They outscored Miami 47, 15, 15, points for the Hurricanes in the second half. One of the best defensive performances we've seen all tournament and probably in the last month or so. Tremendous lockdown from Kansas to turn the tide in the second half to get back to the Final Four. Yeah, that was an absolute ass-whooping in the second half. Um, and, you know, nobody was scoring for Miami in the second half, but uh, shutting down McGusty was huge. McGusty was going off in that first half, getting pretty much whatever he wanted. They were able to shut him down in the second half. Um Peyton mentioned it in our group chat. Oche Abaji was really quiet early on in this game. You know, found himself mid to late first half and ended up having himself a ball game. But, you know, Kansas is going to go as Oche goes. And, and if he continues this kind of disappearing act early on in games or just, you know, for stretches in games, I'm not sure that they can win the national championship. But if he shows up like he did, you know, in that second half, bangs some threes, uh, you know, as Dan kind of alluded to, Kansas is, uh, they're playing, I think, their best basketball of the season right now. And I think, real quick, Peyton, I think what really killed Miami is when Wardenburg fouled out with like nine to go. If he would have stayed in the game as a stretch guy, he could have, and he was basically their only size, he could have helped stem the tide somewhat. But as soon as he fouled out, it opened that middle of the, the, middle of the floor up and just Kansas dominated. 
You know what I think the difference maker in this game was, especially from the end of the first half to obviously what happened in the second half? Because Caleb McGusty was lighting us up, hitting some tough shots. We, even Jalen Wilson, like, he had his hand in his face, and he just hit buckets. We had no answer for Caleb uh, McGusty in that first half. But the difference maker for this game that really set the standard for the second half is when Bill Self pitting K.J. Adams on Caleb McGusty. He locked him up on that final play, blocked his shot, and that took all the momentum out of Miami's hands going to the second half. And that allowed the Bill Self to have something to go into the first half. And then second half, we made an adjustment. Dewan Harris was on um, Caleb McGusty, denying him off ball, was not letting him get the ball at all. And we just played tough defense, locked them down to 15 points in the second half. Chaya Baji, first half. His problem was he just was not – he was too passive. There's so many times Reggie Miller was screaming about it. Kenny Smith on the halftime show was talking about it. He just was not aggressive enough. He kept deferring to David McCormack, who did play one first shot. He kept giving the ball to DeJuan Harris, who can't hit shots. And not only mention that, we won this game shooting awful from the free throw line. At one point, we was 5 from 14. Mm. That cannot happen again. Wimmy Martin missed some free throws. Ochai Abaji missed some free throws. McCormick missed free throws. But the difference maker in that second half is when we went on that 7-0, 8-0 run. And we went up and Christian Brown hit that three to put us up 43-40. to 40. And then we just routed them ever since then. What a display defensively, though. We locked the fuck in. That made me so happy. Yeah, that was tremendous. You talk about... Um... Um, Dewan Harris not being an offensive threat, but damn, he'll get after you defensively. He's got long arms. He will get after you defensively. I thought he was great. So it sets up our final four. We talked about top of the show. Go ahead. Time out. I ain't letting you off the hook just yet, Josh. I mentioned that little clip of Tyler letting all three of you guys have it for picking Providence over Kansas, but I'm not letting you off the hook for one specific reason. Do you think, do you trust Kansas to get to the final four now? Do you trust that Remy Martin can be this guy now that we see I mean, on Arizona State? Do you trust in Kansas now? Okay, okay. I, I, I mean, hold I on, have... hold on. <laughs> I, I will go. So I would, I'm just trying to defend Josh here, but Remy Martin's had two good games in a row. But let's not get ahead of ourselves and act like he's, right. he's been a star. Uh, first of all, he's been unhealthy this season, so let's not forget about that. Second, well, second of all, the Phil's point. Yes, of course, I have to trust them because they're there now, so I don't have any choice. But let's not act like the bracket didn't completely open. This is not to take any ways from Kansas, but the bracket opened up wide open for Kansas. You want to look at their run real quick? Um, Texas Southern, Creighton, Providence, and Miami, when they could have easily and probably should have played Auburn. Um, you don't think Auburn would have been a hell of a matchup for them? So, yeah, the bracket opened up for them, and they also played well. So let's not get too crazy about this. But but, but they are but they are playing well right now, so you got to give them credit for that. They're doing what they're supposed to do. They're winning these games, and they're back in the Final Four. That's all you can say. So I'll eat the crow if you want me to. Okay, well, to, to your point about oh, the bracket opened up, to my knowledge, most of the Final Four teams – the bracket opened up for them too. Duke didn't have to play Gonzaga. Arizona, um, Villanova didn't have to play Arizona in the but, Elite Eight. Carolina didn't have to play a healthy 
uh, Baylor squad, or they didn't they didn't have to play Kentucky or Purdue. So pretty much, I agree with your point, but that's you can say the same thing for all other Final Four teams. Well, not not really for Duke because they're the only region where it held chalk. Basically, they played their fifteen, they played the that's seven fine. in Michigan State, they played Texas Tech, and they played Arkansas instead of Gonzaga. That's the only difference. Duke's the only one of those that actually had to run through the bracket as it was put out. Yeah, so that's eh. fine then. So maybe a little backtrack, but nonetheless, our Kentucky, our Kansas is there. Final four is set. It's a blue blood affair or fair in the final four. I'm going to give you guys a stat. Go back to my article I wrote a month or so ago. We talked about it over the last since 2012. The national champion has consistently had a top 10 offense, top 20 defense. Two of these teams have that of the final four and they're playing on the same side in the final four. Kansas seventh offense, 17 defense. Villanova, nine offense, 18 defense. One of those two are winning the national championship. So let's start with that matchup. Villanova without uh, Justin Moore is a massive blow, but we talk about the program and the stability and the culture with Villanova. They're still going to run their same type of offense. If you don't think that they'll figure out a way to get some kind of bench production from somebody else, to step up in place of Justin Moore, you're kidding yourself because Jay Wright will figure out a way. I would not be surprised if he mixes in some kind of matchup zone here and there, mixes in something to throw Kansas off their game. And yes, Kansas has been playing well. They're going to have to play that elite defense against this Villanova offense, though, because it's a total different monster than playing Miami because Villanova will grind you out. They'll lower the shot clock. They'll get good shots, and they have the best closer in college basketball. And keep this in mind. We know that Jay Wright loves the NBA-style mismatches. We've seen Colin Gillespie at his size back down and post up smaller guards. If Kansas thinks they're going to stick Dewan Harris or um, uh, I can't think Remy Martin on him, then he's just going to eat them up in the post and put them in foul trouble. I think Kansas needs to put Oche Abaji on on um, Kong Gillespie, a bigger guy. Try to keep him more perimeter oriented and make him take tough, long three point shots or long twos contested with the hand. Because if they go with a small guard on him. They're going to get in foul trouble easily, and Villanova is the best free-throw shooting team in college basketball. They're number one. They shoot 83% from the line. We just talked about they went 15-15 of from the charity stripe in this last game against Houston. So I think there's a, there's a chess game that's going on here. Now, Kansas, on their end, they need to run the high-low set. They need to dominate the paint because Villanova is not as big as Kansas. But if they don't get production from in the inside play from their their interior guys on the inside, and if they're going to run a small guard on Colin Gillespie and company, this is a long night for Kansas. With that being said, I've got Kansas winning this game, going to the national championship. Either way, one of these two are winning the title just based on history with the offense defense efficiencies. Um. So I don't, I don't think the winner of this wins the title now after the Justin Moore injury because I did have Nova winning. Um, but I'm with you, Josh. I think Kansas gets the win here. Um, it just really concerns me. Villanova already didn't have much depth. They were already down to playing only seven guys. Now with more out, it, it looks like it's going to be six because I'm not sure that they have anybody that can step into the rotation. I mean, maybe Brian Antoine, um, but he, he's seen very few minutes throughout the season. So it, it looks like they're going to have to go six deep. 
And I think Kansas will just be able to, you know, take over that second half. I think Villanova will play a very good first half, but the fatigue is going to set in late in the game without being able to sub some of these guys out. And then Villanova or uh, Kansas, excuse me, has more size. So I'm with you. Kansas takes this one. Yeah, well, obviously we're going to sweep this. Obviously, I'm going to pick Kansas to win, um, especially after the Justin Moore injury. Losing him is a big-time piece that they're losing for Villanova. But to Josh's point about Colin Gillespie, I like that you mentioned Rochelle Abaji guarding him. I like to see a, a time or two where we throw different people at him. A possession or two, let Abaji go after him. The next possession, let Jalen Wilson go after him. And let Christian Brown go after him too because he can defend. He's a two-way player. Yeah, he don't have the size of um, Rochelle Abaji or Jalen Wilson, but he's long, he's lengthy, he's athletic, he can get up and block shots. Even maybe bring on a guy like I mentioned with KJ Adams coming off the bench. Let him get some of Kellen Gillespie. But the thing that's if, 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 if they bring KJ Adams at seven foot to guard Colin Gillespie, Gillespie's gonna just whip him to the rim. That's you can't do that. That's a no. That's a no no. He's why? Tell me why. Because he's seven foot. Colin Gillespie will eat him for lunch. He's seven foot, but he moves like a guard. Do you not see what he did at Cameron McGusty? Yeah, but McGusty's not Gillespie as far as IQ and experience goes. It, it, well, I yeah. dare I, I dare Bill Self to put KJ Adams on him. I dare them to put that. Because if he does it, Gillespie will have not only him in foul trouble, but he will set that Villanova offense up, and you guys will be down before you know it. I dare Bill Self to do that. The one thing I agree with Josh on this too is that Gillespie is a different player than Mcgusty, and that Gillespie is a lot more consistent as an outside shooter. So, just having that threat, and then you know having to honor that threat a little bit more, he would kill him to the basket. And once he gets to the, once he gets to the rim, and Kansas has to rotate, you're going to kick out the shooters all around the perimeter because the way Villanova runs their offense, you're begging for Villanova to bury you doing that. Real quick, he's not seven foot. He's six seven, so he's not as tall as you think he is, and he's still got a lot of versatility to be able to guard a Colin Gillespie for a little bit. I'm not saying guard him for the whole damn game or even half. I said, if you listen to me, damn it, I said bring him on for a possession or two. Throw some different schemes at him because you know Bill Self will. So don't get carried away. However, I do think what scares me before I was getting before you started talking, what scares me about Colin Gillespie is that. Like I think Phil said it, he has an insane basketball IQ. He's not going to make many mistakes. He's not going to turn the ball over like Miami did a lot in the second half. He's not going to do that. He's going to hit some shots. He's going to control the team, really make them comfortable. But the difference maker for me is I think Ocheo Paji finally, man, I hope I'm right about this, finally plays a great 40 minutes that he hasn't played since before that Kentucky game. I think he is going to be the difference maker. I don't know if Villanova can do can slow him down. I think William Martin's going to have a good game. I do think Kansas wins this one, but boy, oh boy, this one scares me just because of the J-Light factor. I'm going to give you one other concern for Kansas. We've talked about how good Remy Martin's played, but if you go back, and I get it, he wasn't healthy, but it, when they played really tough defenses like Villanova's going to throw at them, that's very physical. They, it's easy to force him in, in some bad shots, some late shot clock shots. Um, Villanova will, I'm guaranteeing you Villanova's physicality and the way they gap the gap the floor on defense. I'd be very wary of Remy Martin feeling a little too comfortable. And keep in mind, I've said this as a start, 
when this thing goes to the Final Four and they go into a dome atmosphere, shooting percentages go down. There's something about the depth perception historically in big domes where shooting is not the greatest. And if Remy Martin and those guys cannot hit early, a slow down, ugly game favors who? It favors Villanova. Kansas has to be clicking on offense to win this game. I've got them winning. I do have them winning. But just keep that in mind. Shooting percentages historically in the domes are not that good. Yeah, I agree. Not only are they not good, they're consistently bad. Those those sight lines with the crowd being moved further back has just been it's been a problem consistently. I'm just not sure why they still haven't decided to move these games back to arenas. I think just for the ambiance and the say that they pack sixty thousand people in a building or whatever. I I, I think that's it and money. Uh, let's be honest, the Final Four normally sells out or close to sell out, and that's a shit ton of cash. So. That's the reason why. But, yeah, shooting percentages are going to be bad, and if it's an ugly game, that favors Villanova. So I think Kansas has to figure out offensive uh, transition buckets, beat Villanova down the floor or whatever. But let's go to the other one. Boy, we talked about it, Peyton. This is a bad year for us as far as talking about the rivalry and stuff because, <laughs> because we our one deal was is that Duke Carolina's never met in the tournament. Well, not only are they meeting the tournament, but they're meeting the fucking Final Four. Um, and both teams are playing great. I, I was thinking about this just a bit ago. As a Kentucky fan, this is just about as bad a Final Four as I could possibly have, with the exception of Villanova. We've got Duke, Carolina, and Kansas all in the damn Final Four. If you had what Louisville if, in there, if you had Louisville instead of Villanova, it would be the absolute worst Final Four possible. I can't forget about Indiana. I was going to say, what if Louisville and Indiana uh, were in there? Yeah, that would be that would be rough. Or Tennessee. Or oh, Tennessee, but, yeah. Yeah, but you know what I'm saying. Like, it, it, but hey, Duke Carolina, first ever matchup, Final Four, Coach. I mean, the storylines there. Like, somebody posted that the end of Coach K's thirty for thirty eventually in a few years is going to be absolute insane. It's going to be insane with all these uh, this stuff going on. They've split the series, one win apiece. Carolina won the most recent one. They didn't meet up in the ACC tournament. Phil, I'm going to let you take first crack at this. You're the ACC guy. Preview the third, the rubber match in the Final Four, the history around it, who you got. Let's get into it, man. Uh, I think this game is going to be a hell of a lot more interesting than either of the first two were. Uh, in the first game, you had Duke sort of hitting on all cylinders. Carolina, you know, lost in the uh, wilderness, so to speak. And in the second game, you know, it was kind of flipped and uh, Carolina just ate them alive. I think both teams playing their best basketball right now. The key to the game is going to be how Mark Williams defends the pick and roll this time because Carolina just ate him alive in the pick and roll in the last game with R.J. Davis and Baycott. Um, so I think that's the key for me. I do think Duke's playing better offensively. I think it's just going to come down to the same thing that the last few games have come down two for Duke that they have more pros on the court. They have the better athletes. And uh, I think this is close for 38 minutes and Duke, you know, asserts themselves in those last two and wins by six, uh, 78 to 72. Josh, I don't know how to fucking preview this game. 
Me either. I, don't know how. I literally don't know how. And you know why? <laughs> like, I wish Duke would have just beat Carolina and the Cameron Indoor. Because if they did, then I would probably put in Carolina to win this game. Honestly, would. But the revenge factor of Duke being pissed off, because ever since they got beat that game, yeah, they lost in the ACC Championship to Vartek, and I'm sure that has something to do with it as well. But ever since they got beat by Carolina, pretty much embarrassed on their home court, this is a whole new ball team than we've seen from that Carolina game till now. Bono Bacaro is a superstar. We've known that all season. Jeremy Roach has played ridiculous in this tournament. Mark Williams is doing his thing. And then Carolina's on the run of a lifetime. Amanda Bacat's been consistent all year. RJ Davis has picked up his game. Um, Caleb Love has picked up his game. Brady Mank hitting shots. I don't know how to preview this game. I'm just going to go ahead and say this. If Duke wins this game and goes on to win the national championship, this has got to be one of the most greatest storybook endings to a career, college play, or excuse me, coach player, whatever, ever in sports history. Because you think about it, he his first, the first game of the year they beat Kentucky. His his last time playing Kentucky ever, they beat Kentucky, beat Gonzaga, gave them their first loss in the season. Win his last matchup in the Dean Smith Center against North Carolina. Wins the ACC regular season title. Gets his 1,200 win against a team that's been a thorn in his side in the tournament, whether they're beating him or giving him problems in Michigan State and Tom Izzo. Getting his 100th win in the tournament against who was it? Texas Tech. And then now to beat North Carolina in the Final Four and eventually to go to the National Championship. Oh, my God. The 30 for 30, like you mentioned, would be incredible. And I'd watch it probably five times. Duke will win this ball game because Paula McCarrie is going to be that dude. He's going to hit some clutch shots. I think this is going to be a high 80-point, 90-point, overtime, maybe double overtime type of situation here. Duke just squeaks by. Yeah, I think I'm in the same category and boat as you guys because this is a tough one because you could make an argument that these two teams are maybe the best two teams in the country right now as far as the way they're playing um, and, and the stakes. Phil, I think you mentioned it, that this will be the high, more than likely this might be the highest rated college basketball game of all time considering who's playing. This is a nuts one, man. I think it honestly comes down. You guys went matchups and stuff. I think it comes down to the fouls. I think it, uh, we seen the first game. Baycott could not guard Bancaro. Foul trouble. He goes out. Carolina gets routed. Duke gets in some foul trouble in the second matchup. So I think the foul situation is going to be the big factor in this. Who can stay on the floor longer with their key guys? Um, and then if that's the case, then – you know, it'll be, it'll be determined how the officiating it goes in this one. But, man, I think this is a back-and-forth affair. I don't think anybody's getting routed. I think this is going to be extremely close to the end. I don't think it's going to be a buzzer beater, but I do think up until that final 30 seconds, the game's going to be in doubt. Uh, maybe overtime. Uh, probably not, but maybe overtime. It's going to be a good one. I think this might be one for the history books because both these teams are playing so damn well. Baycott, can he get 20 and 20 again? It's going to be determined against Mark Williams and company. Who can hit more threes in this dome environment is going to be a key deal. Caleb Love's a better player now with more confidence than he was last time. But you mentioned earlier Jeremy Roach is playing at a high level right now. These are literally, this matchup is, you could flip a coin 50 times and still not be completely sure who's going to win this game. 
Like, there's other matchups we talked about. We favored Kansas over Villanova. This one is such a toss-up. It's a hard one to pick because how well both teams are playing right now. I'm going to say Duke wins because I do think Duke has more pros on the floor. And Duke, late in the game, with their size around Bancaro, Mark Williams, whoever, can go make a high post move, isolation, and go get a late bucket to win one or an offensive putback off of a missed shot late. I think it's coming down to the wire, though. Like I said, I think in the last 30 seconds, we'll not know who's going to win. Maybe who has the ball last. I don't know. I think this is going to be a fun one. There are two evenly matched teams that's playing extremely well right now. I favor Duke slightly, so I'm going to say Duke mm, 79-77. Dukies win by the skin of their teeth, which sets up Duke-Kansas for all of us in the national championship game. Real quick, Josh, we had a, a question in the chat. Somebody's asking who's going to guard Mark Williams for Carolina. Um, I expect you'll see Baycott on Mark Williams, and then you'll see a combination of Leaky Black and Brady Manick on Boncaro like you've seen last game. Um, th that's my guess. I can't see anybody else that Carolina has that would match up with Williams, though. No, I don't either. Unless they try to play more minutes for a Dontrell style like we did or we've seen against Baylor, uh, but that was more on necessity than anything. I, I think – you talked about Duke, how they're going to guard the pick and roll this time. I mean, how are they going to guard the pick and pop with uh, Brady Manick? Because Manick, even though they blew him out in the Dean Dome, Manick was still the guy for North Carolina. 20-some points, hit six threes. It, how are they going to defend that? But same time, what will Coach K tweak in his offense? Because you know he's going to tweak something. Whether that means – maybe stretching the floor out a little bit more to pull uh, Baycott away from the rim to open up driving lanes. Maybe it's posting Bancaro up more. It's going to be interesting that chess match um, to see who can change what slightly enough to make a difference. But I do think Duke squeaks this one out. Yeah. The, you know what the real difference maker of this game for me is? You want to know what it is? It's if John Shire decides to throw <laughs> this game for Coach K or not. That's <laughs> John Shire, okay? Fucking John Shire. That son of a bitch. Uh, he's just ready for this son of a bitch season to be over with. He don't care. Um, but in all seriousness, though, that leads us all to Duke, Kansas, a national title game. We talked with Dan about it. 1991 rematch of the finals. Duke won that one. Will Coach K go out with a, with a bang in a national championship again for his sixth title, tying North Carolina for third all-time? <sighs> Phil, I'm going to let you go because i got to collect my thoughts on this one. All right. So um, I feel bad because I'm, I'm not picking against Kansas just to be a dick to Peyton. I'm really not. But I think that it's, it's Duke's year. Uh, my original pick was Villanova. I felt like they were the team of destiny, and they would still be my pick had Justin Moore not gotten injured. Um, I just think that's too crucial. But as far as this Duke-Kansas matchup goes – um, I think Duke is, is better and more physical down low. I think the guard play is about equal. Um, I think unless Obaji were to come out and have a monster, monster game for Kansas, I, I like Duke in this one. Not, not in a blowout by any means, but 80-75, something like that. Yeah, I, this is a tough one because Duke's size, they do know how to take advantage of Kansas' um, smaller wings and guards. I think a guy like – not only Oche Abadji, I think a guy like Jalen Wilson has to be tremendous. I think Kansas will have to get 
easy runouts. Their defense is going to have to be on par like we've seen tonight. It won't be as good because Duke's a way better team than Miami, but I think Kansas has to play lock-in defense against Duke and that offense and the, the isolation that they're going to try to run. Their bigs have to be great in this game if we get this matchup. They cannot have a disappearing act from David McCormack or um, Prison Mitch in this game. They have to be tremendous because Mark Williams is going to get 17 and 15 in this type of game. It's just the way he's been playing. Again, with the dome, though, will we see A.J. Griffin and Jeremy Roach hit the threes consistently like like they have been here in the last couple months? I think that's a big factor. I'm going to lean towards Kansas slightly, but – Duke and Coach K will be super motivated to have him go out on top, and we know how great Coach K is. But I will give Duke will go zone against Kansas. But don't forget, Bill Self loves to throw some wrinkles himself in. I will not be surprised if he does not go triangle and two on this and chases Van Caro and AJ Griffin and says, if you're going to beat us, other guys are going to step up, and a Mark Williams or Roach or somebody or Wendell Moore is going to have to go for a big night to beat us because I think we've seen it. He'll go triangle two in a heartbeat. And if you don't practice against it a lot, it's hard to kind of figure out. So I think because of that adjustment, the triangle and two that we'll more than likely see, I think it throws Duke off just enough that Kansas is able to squeak a, another really tight game out. I, I got Kansas winning the national title now. I've got them. 82-79. Man, I guess you read my mind because that's exactly why I was getting blamed out for Kansas. Uh, or for really both squads because Coach K and Bill Self, they will try shit out like you said. They're two of the best coaches of just trying something out. Whether it works or not, they're willing to do it. Whether if it's Duke going to a 2-3 zone, uh, Bill Self going to a triangle or two, or even a 2-3 zone himself, or even Duke maybe pressing a little bit, 2-2-1, like they've done in the past. Oh, my God. Um, There's going to be a lot of pressure on Duke just because they want to win this national title for Coach K and send him off on the highest note completely possible. But I think there's also a lot of pressure on Kansas, especially with Trey Abaji, that if he doesn't show up on this game, Duke's going to whoop our ass because Willie Martin's not going to be able to save us in this game. It's not that caliber of game for him that he's going to be able to save us. However, David McCormick has played well in this tournament. He played well in the Big 12 tournament. So has Mitch Lightfoot. But them two going against Theo John coming off the bench and Mark Williams, two physical beasts that's going to impose the will on both guys. That scares me a lot more than any other player on Duke does, whether it's Paula Bancaro or A.J. Griffin or Jeremy Roach or even Trevor Kills. I think this is actually going to be a low, low-scoring game in the mid, mid-60s, mid late-60s. And I think that favors Kansas just a little bit. Especially if they show what they did against Miami in the second half. If they bring that defense intensity in this Duke game, then I definitely think Kansas can pull this one out if it's a type of game like that. But you mentioned the dome factor, how teams historically do not shoot well in the dome, which is true. I think Kansas, and I'm not doing this to be biased, I think Kansas can pull this one out. Barely, though. It's going to be a close one. It's going to be low scoring. I think Kansas wins this game 69-64 to to get our fourth national title, second under Bill Self, and stop Coach K's run. I think that's what I'm going with. 
Hey, real quick, I want to pose this out of you. And I'll just put it like this. If I told you that the national championship game, so let's say it is Duke, Kansas, the national championship game comes down to the final shot. Let's say it's the exact replay of Villanova, North Carolina from 2016. Who hits the Chris Jenkins type shot? Give me one player from each team real quick. If it came down to that, who's the Chris Jenkins of this year? For Duke, I probably the easy guess would say Paulo Bancaro. I could see AJ Griffin hitting that shot, but I'll go with the easy guess and say Paulo Bancaro from Duke. For Kansas, I think it's Christian Brown, actually. That's exactly who I was going to say. That's, That's who exactly. I was going to say for Kansas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. But, Christian uh, Brown, yep. Yeah. For Duke, I actually don't think it's Bancaro, just from, from the looks I've seen them go to at the end of the game so far this year. Um, Coach K will probably go with Wendell Moore Jr. in that situation. I personally think it should probably be Jeremy Roach. I'll go A.J. Griffin because if you're getting a drag three at the end of the game on a, a, a screen or a handoff, it's going to A.J. Griffin and he'll bury it because not only is he hit wide open, but we've seen he hits with a hand in his face. I got A.J. Griffin from Duke and Christian Braun from – Kansas if we have a Chris Jenkins moment in that theoretical matchup so just a little fun tidbit but guys hey we're already down towards the final four I can't believe it's already set it's already here this upcoming weekend Nolens is going to be popping it's a blue blood affair in New Orleans for the national championship and final four this weekend um man I can't believe we're already here already um episode 107 will come at you next Tuesday programming note next tuesday we'll let the final four play out on saturday national championship will be on next monday so we will be back on next tuesday with episode 107 where we will have a national champion for 2022 where we can review the final four the national championship do our season end review and then start kicking off the off-season stuff we've already had our first poll for off-season first watch along when we do it it will be, we'll go back to 2002, reviewing the Sweet 16 clash in Rupp Arena between the Indiana Hoosiers and the Duke Blue Devils. Duke had Jay Williams. They had Carlos Boozer. Indiana had Dane Fife and company. Great classic game to kick off our offseason shows. Um, but I can't believe we're already at the end of the year. And when we do our next show, we're going to have our national champion. It's, it's went fast, man. It's went very fast. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been here with you guys for the whole season, but even just these last, what, two months, eight, basically. 10 weeks, or, yeah, eight, 10 weeks or something feels like the snap of a finger. Um, and I feel like March always goes by really quick. You know, we wait all year for it, and then it feels like it's over before you know it. Yep. Yep, I agree. So with that being said, um Looking forward to episode 107, where we'll have crown our national champion. We'll talk all about it and do our end-of-season reviews, or our end-of-season awards. We'll uh, reveal our All-Americans and all that good stuff, National Coach of the Year. All that and more encapsulates in episode 107. Thank you guys for joining in tonight live on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter for the live show tonight on episode 106. But until episode 107... We hope you guys enjoy Final Four weekend down in Nolens this weekend. And until then, we guys hope you have a great week. 
and we will catch you down the road. Boom! Boom! <laughs>